For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the intimate journey the book Unapologetic Beauty takes in exploring feminine identity and ideals. The story of an artist who found her dream job in the wilderness. And more of the discussion about a study that suggests planet Earth is experiencing an insect apocalypse. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Unapologetic Beauty 1. The ever-changing and imperfect condition of pleasure in oneself that is not bound by age, economic or educational status, clothing size, racial characteristics, bodily proportions, or societal enforcements of a two-gender system. 2. Liberation from the perversity of stubborn beauty standards. 3. An art of self-creation that occurs over a lifetime. 4. Dynamic integration of a real and imagined self, what someone is born with and what she organically and artistically makes of it. 5. Unquantifiable originality. 6. The projection of character. 7. The sovereign choice of each girl and woman. 8. Global appreciation for female variety galore. Hyperbeauty is slick, rigid, and generic. It is the flash of flesh appeal. It is today's beauty ideal. Hyperthin, hyperfeminine, hyperbosomy, hypersexy, and hyperyoung are the privileged quintet that stokes the standard. If an ultimate function of unapologetic beauty is freedom, then the unapologetic beauty herself manifests freedom. True character lies not in appearance per se, but in the distinctive qualities and essential traits that physical appearance makes visible. To lose one's true character is to lose one's true beauty. An unapologetic beauty is the most public of artists. Real flesh, real love, they are the taboos. That was author, poet, performer, and professor Joanna Frew, reading from her newest work, Unapologetic Beauty. It's a collaboration with her friend and creative partner for more than three decades, fine art photographer Frances Murray. Frew's writing reflects her ever-deepening perception of feminine identity and her own spiritual and physical evolution. Murray's photos reveal intimate portraits of these aspects of Joanna, both before and after her bilateral mastectomy and the difficult treatments that have followed. Oh, I think the whole book is a manifesto. And I'm not saying that my other books are wordy and redundant or anything like that, because they are not. But this one is meant for pretty much everyone to understand. And it's really important for people of different ages to understand. You know, women of different ages, men, anybody, anybody. And so I had set that for myself to do that, you know. And now after this, I don't know what to write. When you say that you were writing for women of different ages, I think one of the ways you accomplish that is because you have such a clear and detailed memory of how you thought and viewed the world when you were younger. You go back to your college days. You talk about attending classes at Sarah Lawrence alongside a young woman who was a model at the time and sort of investigating the fact that she was flesh and blood, that she was mortal just like anyone else. 
Oh, yeah, she was flesh and blood. She'd come down to the cafeteria. She'd have pimples, you know. It was great. <laughs> it was a great learning thing. And it's like, yeah, um, models don't look any better than we do. They're just dealt with in a very different way. They're made up. They're, you know, I, we all know what, what models are dealt with more or less. And so it was like, wow, this is a revelation, you know. In a way, it was a revelation. In a way, it was not a surprise at all. Let's talk about women complimenting other women. Do you think that there was a stinginess towards that when you were younger? Is it different now for you? I'm wondering just kind of like how the ability to compliment and provide support for other women has evolved. I know I've always felt comfortable saying to women, oh, your hair looks great, or, you know, what beautiful earrings, or something like that. But that has to do with the accessory. It doesn't have to do with the person. It doesn't have to do with the true character. And um, I'm not saying that, you know, when I say compliment women and girls, you know, and it ha I say in here, it has to be sincere. It has to be sincere. It can't be some superficial baloney because we say superficial things to people all the time. All the time. We think they're just fine, and they aren't. We need to try harder. Yep, me included, big time. Frances Murray, your photographs are featured in this book, and you've worked with Joanna on many other collaborations. Mm -hmm. But I want you to tell us how it began. It began, must be 30 years ago, and I was at a party. And somehow or another, I started speaking with Joanna. And I fell in love with her voice. It was remarkable. And at that time, I was preparing a piece for the Society for Photographic Education. And I was uh, showing my photographs. But at the same time, I had also written prose and poetry. And so we collaborated as far back as then. Joanna read the pieces, and um, it was very moving. And it hit the exact tone that I was looking for. That is how I met Joanna, and that was our first collaboration. And it has continued right up to now. Because the thing is, and I write about that in Unapologetic Beauty, we both have like a penchant for the erotic. And so that was very much in the work, and I love that. And so when we met, she was doing black and white photos. And uh, they're just so wonderful. In a way, I wish you'd go back and do um, black and white again. But here's the thing. I am moving to Portland, Oregon, and I know that there will probably be a major shift in how I perceive the world around me and I'm thinking maybe this will be an opportunity. It's somewhat freeing to be 70. You let go of your ego, and you might be a little bit braver, and you think less about what other people think about you. Times of transition like that are when we sort of get shaken out of our slumber yes. and we begin to see the world again. Yes. And after a while, we get right back into our grooves. But right now, in this time of transition for a photographer, I think that would be a very exciting journey. Do you have reflections on that? The idea of new adventures and times of transition mm -hmm. making us more perceptive? I'm laughing because um, I tell you, after a really toxic chemotherapy, after whole brain radiation, 
it's like, man, can I tell you about transition or what? I think it's never ending for me. And um, that has to do with where the cancer is and the drugs and what one decides to do and whatever, or if you decide not to do stuff. And so I'm transitioning to death like we all are. Uh, the University of Minnesota Press has a blog. And so I wrote something for it. It's the hardest thing I've ever written. It's about trying to describe being here and being there and being nowhere and being no place. And um, that's the transition. It's a mm -hmm. huge transition. And so I say, I, I'm not who I was. I'm barely who I am. Part of it has to do with the kind of meditation that I do. I started uh, meditating very seriously nine, nine, 10 years ago. It's a particular kind of Buddhist meditation. How you learn the technique is by going to a 10-day silent retreat. You scan your body, you scan, you scan it. What can happen from that is that you start feeling, I'm not saying it happens to everybody or all the time, and start feeling tiny, tiny vibrations. And I write about that as scintilla, but I say, you know, I can't say that I see things. I can't say that, uh, that this is a vision of like scintilla that are like moving so rapidly, you can't imagine how rapidly they're moving and they're combining and they're recombining and decomposing and all of that. And so that's part of this transition because I am that. I'm not this. I'm not this matter. This is, um, this is a fake world. I don't know that it's fake. It seems real, but it's not. The other world is the real world. And um, so to be in both of these worlds is very, very hard. And I ask in the book, or I say, I don't know how I got here. You know, perhaps it's the taxateer that... Um, toxic chemotherapy, perhaps it's whole brain radiation, perhaps it's the kind of meditation that I do, and a combination of all of those things. And I continue the meditation through everything. It seems to me, though, and this is very obvious from what you just said, it's not profound insight or anything, that as you refer to the physical world as being the fake world and the other place being the real world, mm -hmm. that you've had the opportunity to take field trips. You've been exploring and visiting in ways that many of us never do mm -hmm. and will do anything to keep from doing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, it ain't the easiest place to be. And one realizes that you're in a whole, you're in a very different place. And who do you talk to about this? Yeah, I can travel there anytime. I'm there. I'm there. And it's a very hard place to be. My guests, Joanna Frew and Francis Murray, are the creators of the book Unapologetic Beauty, published by University of Minnesota Press. Finding a job that you truly love doing and that capitalizes on your talents can be a difficult dream to fulfill. Next, Natalie All shares her path to becoming a certified scientific illustrator and how she became inspired to capture the spirit of the Sonoran Desert wildlife through her art. I grew up in um, Germany and moved to the U.S. when I was 10 years old, but constantly through my childhood, I've always been outside playing with animals. 
I've even had pet worms and whatever I could really, you know, keep and study and, and learn about its behavior was really always very intriguing to me. So just kind of getting outside, I, a lot of the times I would just kind of play by myself and go meander around and watch different animals and see what their behaviors were and then kind of what they were doing. It was always really fascinating to me. I'm Natalie All, and I'm a scientific illustrator and a wildlife biologist. What really inspires me about nature is the biodiversity around us. So just all the, the critters, the flora, the fauna, everything that moves, it really talks to you. Moving from the Northeast down to the Sonoran Desert was such a great change for me because the Sonoran Desert is one of the most lush and biodiverse deserts in the country. And you really can't find quite a desert like this anywhere else. Originally, I thought, you know, I couldn't really combine my love for biology and my art together, so that's why I took more of a biological route with animal behavior. And I like to think of it as a moment of clarity, <laughs> where it just kind of hit me over the head with a frying pan, and I said, well, why don't I do technical illustration and do scientific illustration? Because that's exactly the style of art that I enjoy. It's very technical, it's very accurate, it's very precise, it doesn't have a lot of background noise, and it's just all about the beauty of a certain animal and its morphological traits. Oh yeah, they're really active right now. It's pretty hot out. This is a desert iguana. Um, we actually have real iguanas in the desert, believe it or not, um, and this is one of them. They don't quite look like the other iguanas you might be used to seeing. Um, they're very light colored. They're active during the day. Each individual lizard you're going to find is going to have its own unique speckling, freckling, um, and certain color variations. And these particularly, these desert iguanas are striking. We try to illuminate some of these unsung heroes in the natural world, and actually our tagline for our organization is focusing on life overlooked. Natalie is our artist in residence, which means that she uses her artwork to contribute to conservation efforts. And she can use her unique perspective on the world around us, this hidden world, and help the public understand and appreciate a lot of things that they wouldn't ordinarily even see. I first uh, got together with the biodiversity group actually through my husband, who's been working with them for even longer than me since he's also a field biologist. And I was really drawn to them because of the conservation research that they did and all the traveling that they were offering for these research expeditions and, and really getting out there and, and getting my feet wet with literal mud <laughs> and being able to find these beautiful, undescribed um, species in these really imperiled places that have really been completely understudied. The spider eating the frog is one of my pieces that people either love or hate, <laughs> understandably. Um, I was really inspired by it. I actually took that photograph uh, when I was on a field research expedition in Vietnam, and we were hiking along a stream, and I just saw this spider uh, dangling this poor little frog right above the, the flowing stream, and I just had to get a shot of it and just had to make an illustration of it. It was visceral, yet very accurate to the behavior. I feel extremely lucky that I've been given this chance to be able to combine my passion for art and biology and to do my natural science illustration, as well as my biological field work, and to have it work towards the greater good. I mean, that for me is the most important thing, to be able to say that, what have I done with my life? Have I enjoyed it? Um, 
has it been something that I've been passionate about and, and what can I give back to the community and nature in general? Those were the voices of Natalie All and Paul Hamilton, Executive Director of the Biodiversity Group, in a story produced by Tony Paniagua, edited for radio by Maya Hoffman Long. You can see All's illustrations in the video version on the Arizona Illustrated Facebook page. Stay tuned for more Arizona Spotlight after this break. Welcome back to the show. Last November, New York Times writer Brooke Jarvis published an article called The Insect Apocalypse is Here and asked the question, what does it mean for the rest of life on Earth? The article highlighted an urgent issue that's been known to scientists for decades. The global biomass of insects is diminishing, in some places by as much as 2.5% each year. The loss is especially prevalent among pollinators. I asked Kieran Suckling, the executive director of the Center for Biological Diversity, and Justin O. Schmidt, an entomologist and author at the University of Arizona, to join me in the studio to better understand the effect this decline is having on the environment and our food supply. And Justin Schmidt begins. I think one of the things that we could do is better regulate the chemicals that we're putting in the environment, and that's particularly herbicides, which are drifting and killing the side crops, the hedgerows and fence rows and these areas that serve as reservoirs for beneficial insects. You want something to, to eat the crop pests, well, often they live in these other areas, and the drift of herbicides is killing their plants. And also the insecticides are doing the same sort of thing, so we're, we're really damaging the whole network. We could reduce the fertilizer and tilling. You know, No-till agriculture is one of the things that actually helps preserve the integrity of the system. Because if you do too much tilling, too much fertilizer, then you get the pollution running off into the streams and the lakes and the rivers. And that then messes up the, uh, the invertebrates that are needed for the fish. And the fish are needed for the, for the wild waterfowl. And they're all needed for our enjoyment. I mean, life is here and it's wonderful. 
And if you uh, destroy the beauty of life, then, well, you could ask, what do we have left? It is at the core of the word conservatism to exactly. conserve these animals. And we can also protect and restore their habitat, which is a huge driving force. And of course, you know, there are so many uh, endangered insects out there. there. There's 85 that are officially listed as endangered on the endangered species list, but but there's probably three or 400 that deserve protection. And their habitats vary, but I will say one common thread is fire. We have illuminated fire from ecosystems across the country. Well, fires kept our uh, forests and grassland ecosystems open. Many of the imperiled butterflies need that relatively freshly burned ecosystem where it's open, there's sun, there's lots of flowers. We eliminate the fire, trees go up, brush goes up, there's no more grass, there's no more flowers, it's no longer open for them. And so uh, getting fire, especially back into our public lands, you're not going to be setting um, suburban areas on fire, obviously, but we have a tremendous amount of state, county, federal public land where we can go in and set controlled fires and create butterfly habitat. That's a really, really important one we can do. So some of the science that went into this report was done in Puerto Rico in a place called El Yunque, which is the only tropical rainforest that's part of the American forestry system. So people think about Puerto Rico and they think about the devastating uh, hurricane that they had earlier this year. So they say, well, there was tremendous loss of life on the island. Uh, it seems logical to them that, well, that would affect the insect population too. Maybe this science is skewed because a bunch of insects were wiped out in the hurricane. Well, insects do survive natural disasters if you have a big enough area because you need a residual kind of refuge where some of them made it can expand out from there. And that particular reserve in Puerto Rico got hit particularly hard. They've been hit by several storms. And they do recover, but they don't recover as nicely as we like. And one example is the coqui, which is a famous little frog that they have down there. Its numbers have been plummeting because... Well, what do frogs eat? They eat insects. If insects get devastated by natural or unnatural, natural or man-made disasters, then it goes to you know, one of our icons of, of, the, of the vertebrate world, you know, little cute little frogs and this sort of thing. That was one of the reasons that we set up these wildlife reserves in the first place. And the bigger, the better. It's better to have you know, a couple of big ones than a whole bunch of tiny ones. The tiny ones we put in our backyard as pollinator things. But as far as society goes, it's better to have a few really big ones that are protected from the agriculture and the chemicals and these sorts of things where we can do controlled burns and leave a portion of it unburned. And you, know, you can manage them much better when you have a large area. Yeah, now Al Young is actually a good example of that because there's such a focus on it. Well, the only reason there's a focus on it is it's the only relatively big swath of native forest left in Puerto Rico. Like all of Puerto Rico used to be El Yunque, and it shrunk to this one area. And then we become concerned, oh, my gosh, this area just got hit by uh, a hurricane. Well, in the past, well, yeah, that island would get hit by the hurricane, but not that one. And there'd be a fire in that place, but not this place. And so... Natural disasters were never a threat to these species. In fact, they would often open up areas and they create a patchwork of 
young areas, middle age areas, older areas, etc. Same thing with floods and so forth. Well, the thousand pound gorilla in this conversation would be global warming and what effect climate change is having. Global warming is part of the disaster we're seeing because many animals, you say, what's a degree? What's a degree and a half? But that makes a difference in life and death. They, they might emerge two or three weeks earlier in the spring. And it could be that whatever resources they need, the uh, flowers or the plants that they eat, are not there at the right time. Or they've gone extinct because the plants can't withstand that, that big of an affrontery. And the other thing that global warming is doing, actually global climate change is a better description because the variance, in other words, if the fluctuation from extreme heat to extreme cold is getting much wilder. We had an example here in Tucson in 2011 got this terrible, huge, killing frost. One of the good things it did in my mind was it killed off a lot of the exotic plants that were tropical and couldn't, couldn't live here because the plants we have here, creosote bushes and these sorts of things that we have native, the burrow weeds and you know these kinds of things, they're used to these affronteries and they can spring back, whereas the exotics we planted don't. But that's just an illustration of how can really trash if something is on the top of a mountain and all of a sudden you get a fire because of the global warming and the climate change which makes fires more prone and hotter then uh, you've, you just lost the whole population of whatever this, this species was, be it insect or be it something bigger and fuzzier. Kiran, as executive director of the Center for Biological Diversity, how do you look at climate change in relation to this topic? Well, it's a huge issue. My, my first thought is you know, uh, we're spending, rightfully so, a lot of money on researching impacts of climate change to wildlife. Very little of that on insects, though. So there's a huge research gap here, and we don't know nearly as much about this uh, as we need to. Um, but the impacts are huge. We're already seeing it. Uh, you know, one is just a question of timing. Like you'll hear, well, it'll get warmer, and you know, species will will move north following the warmth, and they will to some extent. But the problem is, most of these insects are dependent upon a single species of plant, either to eat or to reproduce on. And so, if the plant moves faster or slower north than the insect, the insect is no longer in the same place as the plant. Uh, and they can and may go, not know how to find it. Yeah, and they can go extinct. So it's not like entire ecosystems move. Pieces of it move, and they move at different rates. Another issue is disease, and we're finding more and more now that this is linked to climate change, where in a warming climate, new diseases move in because most of these species, they've evolved with all manner of diseases for millions of years and they've worked out a, a balance and sometimes it's a boom-bust balance, but they've worked that out. A new disease comes in because of climate change. They're not evolved uh, to survive that and they can get wiped out. And so that's definitely something we're seeing. Uh, and then competing invasive species. Uh, these species, uh, with the exception of some that live in very remote areas, they're having to deal every day with new insects introduced into their habitat, a lot of that driven by climate change. It's a huge issue. It's clearly a threat. We don't know enough about it, um, and it can really come back to bite us all in the butt. We're really playing 
Russian roulette here, and it's in the dark. We don't even know which way the gun is pointed, never mind how many bullets on it, but we keep pulling the trigger. My guests were Kieran Suckling, the executive director of the Center for Biological Diversity, and University of Arizona entomologist Justin O. Schmidt, author of The Sting of the Wild. You can listen to the complete conversation on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.